Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Tim, founder of the Draper Venture Network, a global network of venture capital funds. He funded Beidou, Tesla, Skype, SpaceX, Twitch, Hotmail, as well as many other unicorns at seed stage. Tim is a supporter and global thought leader for entrepreneurs everywhere and a leading spokesperson for Bitcoin, blockchain, ICOs, and cryptocurrencies. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review, and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Tim, welcome to the European VC. It's a huge honor to have you here today. How's everything? Terrific. I've been a European VC for years now, so happy to be a part of this. It's actually really cool because we actually saw you at Tech Barbecue, and Andreas, with his unashamed manner, approached you and asked, hey, would you be down to doing this podcast and your game? So thank you for that. That was really cool of you. Appreciate it. Oh, of course. And that was really fun. We did a whole Meet the Drapers episode right on stage live. That may be a better way to do it. Nothing beats like we're doing a cookout at Web Summit and we should bring you in for it because I think that you would really enjoy the crowd that we're bringing together there to Portuguese cuisine cooking. Oh, yeah. Well, let me know. You send me an invite. We will. We'll, we'll send the calendar. Hopefully you can make the time for it. Tim, we normally start our episodes with, you know, a question to the GP that I'm interviewing. How did you get into venture? How did your funds come to be? I think there are way too many documentaries and stuff written about, about your story out there for us to ask that question. But, you know, what's interesting is that you've built what's, in our opinion, at least uh, at UVC, one of the most recognized and respected franchises in venture. And so, you know, we have to focus this interview on teasing out some learnings for you. What's interesting from my perspective is the more beaten path would be to scale like Sequoia, A16Z and the likes, but you've ended up building this kind of huge, I call it like ecosystem that encompasses multiple VC funds. So Draper Associates, the Draper Venture Network, DFJ, Entrepreneurial Education, Draper University, Draper TV and BizWorld, and even like real estate and all our political initiatives. And that's a lot, right? And so tell us, you know, is there a way to, you know, give a quick overview of this story and how this came to be? Is that at all possible, Tim? First, you've done some good research. So I appreciate that. That's our job. <laughs> well, look, I have always felt that the entrepreneur was the hero of the world and we need more of them. And I made it my mission to spread entrepreneurship and venture capital around the world. And because I grew up in the Silicon Valley, my grandfather was the first Silicon Valley venture capitalist. My dad was a pioneer in venture capital. And I saw what it did for the Silicon Valley, how we, you know, it was farmland and it became you know, the center of all this economic growth and activity and jobs. And, and I thought, wow, this is really great what it does. And so when I started in the venture world, I thought, well, first I had to start small and grow from there. And I did. I started with a small business investment company. I borrowed money from the SBIC program, which was very efficient at that time. Now it's uh, not as efficient <laughs> as most successful government offices that just grew. And then I, I guess I just started with these guys in Alaska and that started the whole thing off. I, I saw a bunch of companies in Alaska. There weren't too many that were fundable. It was like salmon skin wallets and that kind of thing. But it gave me a, a window on the world where I thought, you know, there are these little entrepreneurs everywhere and they're not getting funding and they're not getting a 
chance to grow. And so I started to build out the Draper Venture Network and that ended up, I mean, now it's 25 relationships with venture capitalists. They cover about 60 cities around the world. And that was my window. And then I, one of those network partners was um, DFJE Planet. And, and with DFJE Planet, I traveled out to China and I met all three of the BAT entrepreneurs. Uh, the only one I backed was uh, Robin Lee. He was really an extraordinary guy. And that, so we funded Baidu. And then I followed these guys who had created Kazaa and they decided that they were going to leave Australia and go to Europe. And they tagged up with a technical team from Estonia and they did Skype. Well, it was called Skyper at the time, but yeah. uh, they did Skype and they were really quite extraordinary. And and so I backed them too. And those two gave me a feeling that it encouraged me to continue to spread venture capital and entrepreneurship around the world because they were such big winners at a time when the Silicon Valley was really collapsing. Yeah. And we got a good window there. And then I worked with, I built up DFJ, but it became such a large institution. It was kind of going the way of all those other growth venture funds. And it made less sense for me to work with in the institution because I, I liked making my own decisions. And so I spun out and started going solo. I started investing solo. And when I did, I realized it opened me up to do a whole bunch of other things that would be great for entrepreneurs. And that's where I started Draper University. And that, now we've had 3,300 students through there and they've wow. started 800 companies and they've come from 102 different countries and five are unicorns, by the way. Um, <laughs> and then I did something else, which my partners would never allowed me to do, which was I started a TV show and... <laughs> And it's called Meet the Drapers. And I did it with my, my dad and my daughter and my sister. And one of my sons uh, gets involved once in a while. And we did it as just for fun, you know, no big deal. I thought maybe three people would watch. And it turned out we now have 11 million viewers around the world. And we're expecting 30 million next season. You hit a sweet spot, right? Yeah. And some of the, some of the entrepreneurs are coming and saying, thank you, thank you. You know, between when my show aired and the finale, these were groups that made it to the finale. You know, my business has doubled because of your show. And so it's not just helping entrepreneurs get funding, but it's actually helping entrepreneurs build their businesses out. So it's really quite extraordinary. And so now I get deal flow from the 3,300 graduates of Draper University as scouts. And I get yeah. deal flow from the 30 million people who are watching <laughs> Meet the Drapers. And it comes from all over, it's really exciting. So our biggest issue at Draper Associates is how we filter these. And then we did start the Draper Startup House and that we did that in two different ways. One was I bought a, a couple of houses in Austin, Texas to sort of see how that would work. And then I worked with this um, amazing entrepreneur who decided to reposition the hostels, a lot of hostels around the world. So we now have 25 and we're expecting to get to 100 in a year, Draper startup houses around the world. And they, they do business plan competitions and they're usually great locations for startups to go kind of get started and they're low cost and that kind of thing. So we've done a bunch, BizWorld. Well, BizWorld was, I started that because 
my daughter asked me, well, what do you do? Where do you go? And I created a simulation <laughs> in the schools. Now that's reached about 600,000 people, uh, students. The political thing is just, I don't think California understands the value. They understand that Silicon Valley brings in a lot of tax revenue. They don't understand <laughs> how valuable it is to let Silicon Valley rip and be free and trust Silicon Valley to do the right thing. Uh, the regulations and all that stuff have got very rough so that it's kind of looking a little more like Europe. <laughs> and we do this great for innovation index. I have data scientists that are out there figuring out what are the best countries and states within the United States to innovate in. Yeah. And now California is no longer number one. It's Texas and Florida and Wyoming. And the U.S. is still marginally number one, but Switzerland is a close second and Singapore is a close third as places yeah. to get started uh, with a business. And then Northern European countries, which used to be known as the socialist countries, are now becoming more capitalist and um, more free and more trusting of their people. And that's very exciting. And boy, when I went to Copenhagen, and saw the tech barbecue. By the way, I never ate any barbecue while I was there. But when I saw uh, what's it, up with that, right? Neither did I. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually true, right? Because everyone who doesn't know tech barbecue would kind of expect that when they get there that there would at least be grilling burgers somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> You're right. There's something that's off by there. But I did yeah. notice there are a lot of great entrepreneurs there. And the ones who do start businesses are quite extraordinary. And so I'm very interested in meeting with entrepreneurs that come from those Northern European countries. We are very smart in uh, Denmark. <laughs> yeah. I think if a country gets invaded that many times, you know, <laughs> there, hey, hey, there, we, there's a lot of genetics that happen and a lot of uh, sociological improvements that happen because they, they get a lot of cultures. We still think ourselves as the invaders being the Vikings still, yeah. uh, <laughs> even though there's not much of a Viking in need to be honest. But Tim, you said a couple of things I'd love to dive a bit deeper into, and I, I can't really, I think I'll start with the Draper name and the family, you know, that you clearly, you're bringing your family together around what you're building for some reason. And, you know, just actually yesterday we interviewed a, another V or a European VC who was actually also starting his, with his dad, um, spinning out of a medtech distributing company. So I'm curious to hear your thinking around why do you choose to center your business around the Draper name, because that's, you know, many say, well, I don't want it too associated to me as a person and the family and all that. So I'd love to hear your thinking around that. And also, you know, your own thinking around having your, your family that closely involved in your business. Those are great questions. Let me lay out the two and they have a couple of different answers to them. The reason I chose Draper as the brand was because I noticed that when people put their names on things, two things happen. One is they take pride in their work. Yeah. And the other is that their name gets mentioned and their name gets mentioned again when the company's name gets mentioned. So you end up getting it twice. <laughs> so it was as simple as that when I was getting started. And actually it was funny because my dad was a little concerned about putting the Draper name on the yeah, he didn't, he didn't know whether his son was going to be very successful. <laughs> and he was long gone from the venture business when I went in. He loved it, but then he worked administration for the U.S. Export-Import Bank. He was the chairman, and then he was the administrator of the U.N. Development Program while I was getting going, you know, while I was just getting started. And so I, I started Draper Associates on my own. 
And interestingly, three of my children have started their venture funds on their own. One son, Billy, worked with me for a while, for four years. And then when we were ready to go start raise another fund, he said, Dad, I'm out. And I, I looked and I went, oh, ooh, too bad. This is, I, I was kind of excited about how this was all going to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, I was very proud of him for deciding to be kind of an entrepreneur and going out on his own. Yeah. So they've all created pretty successful venture firms on their own. Yeah. But we work. <laughs> My wife, it drives her crazy at the dinner table. If we're all at the dinner table. Uh, all we're doing is talking about the deals we did or who we met, or, and she's just kind of going, what do we really have to do this? And so if you are working in a family venture business, I mean, now we're four generations in, and none of us work with any of the others, like directly. But indirectly, we share deals, we pass around yeah. ideas, we look for improved ways, best practices, how do we delight yeah. a customer, that kind of thing. The reason I ask is uh, partly at least, you know, it's interesting for our audience, I believe, of course, but I've also written a book on on succession in family businesses. So, you know, those stories are so interesting to me to hear always how you think about it. So that was that was super cool of you to enlighten us on. Well, we've always, um, not always, but recently, since I spun out and went solo, I also raised money alongside my money. And uh, in raising that money, I determined that we're sort of perfect for family offices. We're a good fit for family offices. And so we look at family offices as our market. They're our market. And so we're looking at some of the same things you were looking at. In fact, I'd like to read your book. And I'll send it over. We did get it translated, so I'll send it over. You just made Andreas very happy. <laughs> yeah, you just made me very happy. No, but I actually imagine that there is a bigger truth to that than most listeners think because the importance for a family office or a family to know that the other site has the same values is, you know, that's much more important to them than figuring out whether you're 3x or 4x or whatever you're going to deliver on them. They want to be in business with people that share their values. And and as such, you know, it's also been very obvious in, in family business get togethers that, that there is a bond between those that, that own families because they, they know the same issues and they go through the same pains of figuring out how to make business and family work together. I actually imagine that there is quite a fundraising opportunity there as well, to put it very uh, cynically. <laughs> right. And, and I have found institutions don't want to invest with me because I don't look like an institution because yeah. I am the single point of uh, decision making. They want the succession plan and all that. So we have a good succession plan, but they want an institution, like they want to fund something that looks like them. Ten yeah. decision makers all fighting it out before they make an investment. <laughs> Turns out that's not good for early stage venture capital. It might be good for late stage, but not early. Everyone knows that a politicized process only makes for better decisions. <laughs> um, so Tim, I have another question, which is, I'm curious to hear, so many, you know, aspiring to build a big franchise or a company that will, or firm that will go into the next generations as well and become a name that everyone will know, but you chose to build the Draper Venture Network as a network of funds rather than as one entity or one entity with other funds under it. Could you kind of, you know, shed a bit of light on, on how the structure of the Draper Venture Network is and why you picked that formula instead of the more traditional one? Yeah, I've always believed in decentralization. And I guess the word yeah. decentralization is a new one, but I've always <laughs> believed in that concept that freedom to allow people to thrive locally or wherever 
is better than trying to control everybody and tell everybody what they should be doing or investing in. I also didn't have the resources to set up other offices when I was getting started. So the best way to do it was to, in effect, franchise. And so we did that. And that venture network has been really very successful. And, and the groups that have come from it in Europe. Uh, and Molten being the one that everyone knows here, right? Molten, which, yeah, which was Draper Esprit. That has been an enormous success and it's built great relationships. And it's really nice to have relationships all over the world too. Yeah. It's taken a lot of travel on my, my part, but it's also opened my mind. I'm much more, I, I think you travel, you become more worldly, I guess, yeah. by definition. I imagine your wife was super happy you chose to build that network. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, sometimes she's happier when I'm gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when you know it's time to get home. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so I built that out a little at a time. We kind of controlled the DFJE planet when we built that out. That was more of a, a core offering. That was the one that had Skype and Baidu in it. Yeah, yeah. But still, it was really great to have teams on the ground in various places in Europe, various places in Asia, China, whatever, and South America. Because you, when I fly there, I get to see you know 15 of their best deals. I get to get a cultural understanding, meet potentially with the president of the country so that I can kind of guide them to thinking about how to attract more venture capital and entrepreneurship into their country. I had a bet with a president Macri from Argentina, and it was that I would bet that first I told him about Bitcoin. And then two years later, I came back and said, you know, I told you about Bitcoin. It's gone from 10,000 down to 4,000. Um, and he goes, yeah, yeah, it didn't really go very well. And I said, yeah, and the Argentinian peso during that time has gone from 75 cents down to 25 cents. And then I said, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a bet that if the Argentinian peso outperforms Bitcoin over the next year, that you, <laughs> that um, I will double my investment in Argentina. And, and he said, oh, great. And then I said, but if Bitcoin outperforms uh, the Argentinian peso, you made Bitcoin a national currency. And he laughed and I said, well, wait, wait a second. I mean, the way Japan has. And he goes, what, Japan has? And I said, yeah. And so I, he got on the phone with Japan, and whatever. <laughs> I don't know what they talked about. But I made that bet. He got voted out of office in November. But I think he could have turned around the entire economy because Bitcoin went, I mean, now it's at what, almost 20 something thousand. Yeah. But it was up around... 40 or 50 and yeah. a thousand and he could have paid back the IMF. He could have shown the world that he was open for <laughs> business. He could have so many things, yeah. but he didn't bite. And the Argentinian peso has now gone from 25 cents down to one half of a penny. Ah, fuck yeah. Ah. yeah. I think I won the bet. <laughs> that also reminds us both in Europe and the U.S. right now that maybe we shouldn't cry too much about our inflation. <laughs> that's that's right. not the parts of the world that's feeling it. No, but you should probably buy some Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. I'll sell my sofa in, uh, in exchange for a 15th or so of a Bitcoin. <laughs> okay, that's good. And the U.S. government, how they spin these things is beyond me, but it is the inflation-fighting bill that went through. And the inflation-fighting bill is one where they spend $1.1 trillion. I'm just thinking, what are you thinking? 
<laughs> yeah, well, you spend more money. That creates more inflation, but somehow they don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> so in, Den in Denmark, our situation right now is that we have uh, public elections going on at the same time as we have a rampant inflation crisis. So that's really good for the economy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And they're all talking out of both sides of their mouth. But I look at Bitcoin and I think not only is it a better currency, it's going to change finance, banking, real estate, everything. But it's a hedge against bad government. You see a bad government, all the people can go and use Bitcoin and create value. We should go into the quick fire round now, which is how we end all our episodes. And I'm going to take the risk that we run out of time because I need to ask when, you. When you're quick, it doesn't mean I'm quick, but I'll try. <laughs> no, but, but what I really wanted to ask you, Tim, is actually, you know, we, Andreas and I, we're huge proponents of Europe. Most of our audience is, is based in Europe, 90% or so. And, you know, we're always talking about what we think is needed for Europe to develop. And because, you know, we're, we're not at the stage that the U.S. is, even though returns have been amazing in Europe and we're outperforming. But we often say that, you know, part of the magic of how the U.S. developed is the fact that it was so physically concentrated in, in one location that that really facilitated interconnection between the players. And that really helped the ecosystem develop and explode. I think it was very important that that physical location was 3,000 miles away from Washington, D.C. <laughs> that, that's a good detail that we often don't talk about, but I, yeah. I, that's actually interesting. But my question to you is actually, you know, what we're building and what we're trying to contribute to our own ecosystem is to bring that connectedness to Europe, considering that it has to be in some way virtual and digital. And so I'd, I'd love to ask you, obviously, how you think about Europe, but more specifically, you know, how do you think Europe is poised to develop in the coming years? Because I'm very excited. I'm very bullish. I'm almost saying like it's going to be a better returns profile than uh, venture in the U.S., but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Europe kind of ran the world for so many generations, and then you kind of had the wine and cheese generation. Then this new generation has woken up and said, wait, what, we don't run the world? And they are becoming incredible entrepreneurs. And so I'm starting to see some really great entrepreneurial activity out of all parts of Europe. What has to develop is the mindset, because you know Europe has these unbelievably fun places. You know, Paris and Copenhagen and Rome, they're all these beautiful places with cobblestone streets and wonderful restaurants, and it's a beautiful thing. Well, nobody wants to touch those. They're so much fun. But <laughs> to do something really entrepreneurially, you've got to have sort of a wide open space. You need to be able to build whatever you need. You need to be able to use whatever chemicals you need. You need to be able to fly drones wherever you want to fly them. You need to be able to burn energy if you have to. You need to be able to do things that these governments won't want you to do because and it's not just governments, it's old generations. They don't want you to do because, hey, you don't want to mess with Paris. It's a beautiful place. The place is beautiful. I understood it. When I went, I went, oh, this is why all the entrepreneurs leave Paris. It's because, or, or either that or they start restaurants, because nobody wants to touch a city that's that beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's old, and you, you certainly wouldn't want to start a business there because you can't do much. I mean, try flying a drone over Paris. It's not going to work. They're not going to let you. You know, there's a place called Gurgaon outside of Delhi, and the whole thinking in Gurgaon was, hey, we're going to build a city that is all for technology and whatever. They're a little too close to Delhi, but it was a good idea, I think. 
to try to build a city that allowed entrepreneurs to thrive. But if you're too close to the government, they're just going to be in your face before you even get started. Bureaucrats and politicians have to let people rip for a while. They have to let the company rip for a while before they figure that they have to regulate it. And that's been a problem recently that now I see these startups who are going, yeah, but we got to go check with the FAA or the somebody. And I'm saying, but wait a second, you're you're inventing something completely new. There are no rules for it. And they, they, it's like the entrepreneur has to go get rules. Yeah. And I think the entrepreneurs, the best entrepreneurs should just build your business, let it rip and let everybody else figure out what the rules are later. I love that. And and I think you're absolutely right. It's a culture thing. Tim, I have to take the opportunity as well to you know do something that I do in, in very few episodes, which I like to think of it as kind of the reverse UVC office hours, which is where we're kind of, feeding off the knowledge of our amazing guests, <laughs> you know? And so I'd love to have your feedback on basically what we're doing. And so what we're doing is obviously, you know, we say that we democratize knowledge into venture by interviewing amazing people like yourself, but also emerging GPs and kind of just shedding light on what is happening in Europe so everyone can kind of get access to more information. And then on the other side, what we're also doing that I am super, super excited about is that we're actually doing LP syndicates. So we allow people across Europe, not only, but mostly across Europe to join us with small tickets to invest into VC funds. Of course, you get the financial value, but what we advocate is it's an amazing source of strategic value of network building and so on and so forth. I'd love to have your take on it and how you think about these topics as well. Well, we're always very particular about who our LPs are because what we don't want is to have an LP who's a small LP who kind of, uh, you know, doesn't really understand venture capital, doesn't understand that they're illiquid for 10 years or five years or whatever. Although we do have a solution for the illiquidity thing. We've um, negotiated with all our entrepreneurs to within five years, all of our stock is liquid. We can sell it. Or if the company gets to be worth $100 million, we can sell it. That's kind of how we write it in. And so people who don't really understand it, who invest, it's a little harder for us to take LP money from that group. Now we're going into a bear market. It might be harder to raise money. We might be more open to something like that. There's a lot of players democratizing venture, right? There's a lot right now in the US, many more because it started earlier. What we always say is that we optimize for what we call like value add operator LP, meaning like we're optimizing for people who have a strategic objective within venture. So they want to be a GP sooner or later. It might be in two years, it might be in 10 years. And so there is that level of knowledge. And we, on the other side, we optimize for funds that want to work with a network as big as possible of angels, but they don't want to deal with the operational financing or even regulatory hassle of that. And that's where we come in. So you're standing between them. Yeah, exactly. And I see. Well, that in the US, we wouldn't be allowed to do that. So there's a regulatory hurdle. But in Europe, I think you can. I think there's some steps you can take and you can do that. Yeah. That was well described. Yeah. (laughs) If you aggregated a bunch of money that way, I think that could be really interesting and to be a part of our network or your network, I think would be a valuable thing. So sure, we should talk about that. Just to be clear, I wasn't pitching it, Tim. I just really wanted to have your take, but we'd love to talk about that. We'll do that off the record though. If I may, I'm going to jump into the quick fire round, Tim, is how we end all our episodes. We try to keep it 30 to 60 answers to each question, but let's see what we can do. Are you ready? Yeah. So the first question of the quick fire round is what areas, technologies or sectors excite you the most but that most people around you don't really seem to be that excited about. Yeah, I like Bitcoin and the blockchain and smart contracts have made it so that you can create these DAOs and the DAOs can potentially transform the way we're governed. 
I think that's something that a lot of people haven't really focused on. It's hard to figure out how you would make money doing that, but I think it's exciting and something really exciting. We also invest a lot in space and transportation. I think Elon broke open a, a big log jam there and people are focused on yeah. space and transportation. We got a lot of interesting companies in those fields. And then in healthcare, everything is going digital, both diagnostics and therapeutics. And so, yeah, those are three areas that I like. Yeah. My second question of the quick fire team is what would be your top tips or tip to emerging GPs in Europe, if you care to try and talk to them specifically, who are now fundraising? Well, in putting the money to work, my top tip would be diversify and build as much deal flow as you possibly can so you, you can build your judgment. In fundraising, uh, you're going into a bear market. I would look at it as fundraising as a way of building relationships, not as a way of quickly getting money. Because I think a lot of these people don't have money right now, but they will when the next bull market happens. So you might just be patient with your investor. Also with institutions, Sometimes they've got money and sometimes they don't, but both times they put you through the ringer. I would make sure that they've got money available before you put your effort into trying to raise money from any institutions. Third question of the quick fire round, and this one I actually really love, which is since you've been in venture, what has been your most counterintuitive learning? I built a really big venture firm. It was actually kind of number one in the world in 2004 or five. I realized that when we made it in, then our LPs all said, you got to have more partners, more partners. So we had 10 partners. They all had an equal say. It turns out that the decision-making of 10 partners on a startup is usually a mealy one. It doesn't have the passion it, it needs to have, and it doesn't recognize the outlier. So the returns go down. More partners, returns go down. That was something I learned. I love that take. And that's one that we definitely haven't had before. So thanks a million for that, Tim. So I have a final question that I have to ask you. And that is, you were born in 1958, if I'm not mistaken. You are correct. <laughs> so I want to ask you, what's more likely in the next 10 years? Will you retire or will you run for president? <laughs> Both are very unlikely. <laughs> <laughs> ah, fuck. If you had to choose, that would be the president, right? <laughs> I have no intention to ever retire. My dad's 94 and he still goes to work every day. So I have no intention of retiring. And I think that I actually can have a bigger impact on the world by being a venture capitalist than I can by being a politician. So I think I'm better off where I am. Yeah, I think that usually you say the government's only really, you know, move the needle on 0.1% or so of the budget. The rest is actually just continuing what was already going on. So, you know, a successful venture capitalist might have bigger AUM. <laughs> so at yeah, least, at least a, considering a Danish prime minister. A politician can only screw it up. The best politicians are the ones who don't have big egos and they just sort of say, you guys go figure it out. You know, go figure out your life. It's a hard thing because most of them want to solve everybody's problem. And then you start solving everybody's problem and you create the worst economy in the world. That's North Korea and, or the future of China. I mean, China during free China was awesome. That was yeah. so cool. And now China is just like a military dictatorship and the guy's nuts. Yeah. <laughs> Those poor people in China, they, they were free for a while and now they're not. They're just going, what happened? And it was just one guy. Totally messed the place up. I am uh, teaching my son 
so that now what he says when he asks me if someone is good or evil, he then always has a third option, which is, or is he just taking care of himself and doesn't care about what other people do? Because I always teach him that you just <laughs> don't meddle in other people's lives. Let, let people live their life and then everything will be good. <laughs> yeah, and that's sort of a freedom, decentralization and trust thing. If you trust your people, the people do really well. They live up to that trust. My business is all about living up to trust. And if I fund a company, I'm giving them my trust. And more than 99 times out of 100, they live up to that trust. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, absolutely. Tim, thanks so much for joining us for this. This was the perfect place to end the episode, I think. So let's end here. Thanks a million. It was awesome having you with us. Great. It was fun being on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc.